Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is in the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, uh, Micah says, who is like you? Um, which I suppose in part means that you, you regularly defy our expectations. You are, you are a God that is not the God that we expect to meet. You are not the God whom we would envision if we were asking the question, what would God be like if he was the imaginary projection of our highest values? Um, you are different. And you are different in a way that is so much better than we can imagine. And Paul tells us in that reading that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who belong to Jesus, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not every blessing we want, but every blessing you can imagine. And even saying that it is beyond our capacity to envision it, it's our, beyond our capacity to imagine, and yet that's exactly the magnitude of your power. Your power is beyond all that we can ask or imagine. And so we ask that you will pour out and make vivid to us every spiritual blessing that you have given us. Father, will you make us here at Emmanuel to be a people who taste and see the magnitude of your grace to us? And make that in, animate and make alive 
each individual on this call and all of us together as a community. So now as we come to your word, will you speak? And will you grant us to hear? For the praise of your glory. Amen. Amen. All right, friends. Um, we are going to start a new series today. We are starting uh, a series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, and just to set it up a little bit, um, Paul, the apostle, pretty famous guy, uh, he wrote this letter, probably dictated it to somebody else who was actually writing it down. Um, and he dictated this letter about 20 or 30 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. We think uh, that he's writing, by the way, this is the second uh, reading, we think he's writing from uh, the city of Rome. We know that he is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Uh, he is literally, as he's dictating this, he's literally chained to a Roman guard. And the reason he's a prisoner uh, is that months and actually years before this, uh, some of the religious leaders that were in Jerusalem uh, manufactured some bogus charges against him, and then the Roman authorities arrested him. But even when they, after they put him on trial and the Roman authorities realized that he was innocent, nevertheless, they kept him in prison. They kept him in jail um, just partially so they could make everybody else happy. So it's totally corrupt. And what I'm trying to say is that Paul's having a hard time. And I think it's going to be important for us to keep in mind the difficulty that Paul's experiencing as he writes this letter. Um, Paul is speaking and writing this letter from the vantage point of suffering. He's incarcerated. He's in prison. He's not writing from a posture of privilege. He's not writing from a place of power. He's not, you know, a really wealthy guy giving a TED talk. Um, he is speaking with the credibility of pain. However, despite all of that, despite the suffering that he's going through, Paul, the apostle, you'll notice this, is strangely full of joy. Paul writes this. He is strangely full of confidence. He is strangely full of vision. This is important. He's full of vision for the church, the church in Ephesus, the church in every age, which is kind of formidable because a number of us, um, are a bit disillusioned with the church, with the wider movement of Christianity right now. We've talked about that before, and there's reason for us to be disillusioned with the wider movement of Christianity right now. But here's Paul, and Paul is writing this letter. He has seen religion at its worst, and yet beside, despite all of that, Paul writes, and he is resolutely full of vision for the church. Now, I want to know, why is that? Let me pause and back up just a little bit. One of the questions that I've been asking all through 2020 is I think a really, really obvious question. Here, here's the question. It's really obvious if you're somebody who believes in God. And the obvious question to ask in 2020 is, God, what in the world are you doing? Have you asked that? More specifically, one of the questions I've been asking is, God, what is it that you want to accomplish, particularly at Emmanuel and within us, in the midst of all this mess. Now that's a way bigger question than I can answer, but let me share with you just a little observation. If you look at the big picture of the Bible, one of the themes or the patterns that comes up is this. When God's people suffer or go through times of great adversity, 
That is very often the time when they rediscover God. And in particular, that is very often the time when they rediscover God's grace and that God's grace is sufficient for them in the midst of their difficulty. They rediscover God in the midst of suffering. Example, Micah. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been reading Micah together. And that first reading was, we read it, we read it last week and we're few weeks ago. That's the conclusion of the book of Micah. Micah is an Old Testament prophet somewhere around 700 years before Jesus, and he sees God's people, Israel, in his day. He sees them at their worst. We've seen this. Israel, ancient Israel, was catastrophically corrupt. And yet, despite all the horrendous disaster all around, at the end of the book, Micah is actually not looking at Israel. Rather, Micah is looking at God. And that first reading is his conclusion. And his conclusion is full of the wonder of God and his grace. He says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, delighting in steadfast love? You are not the God that I anticipated. You are not the God that anyone else anticipated. You're better. And he finds that in the midst of disaster. Or another example, Job. Uh, if you read the Bible, almost no one suffers like Job does. And yet in the end of his suffering, and all through his suffering, Job is asking, why, 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 why? He never gets an answer, which is a touch maddening. But at the end of his suffering, he says this. He says, you know, before I suffered, I had heard of God, kind of secondhand. But now at the end of my suffering, I have seen him with my own eyes, which means I've actually come to know him for real. He meets God from the vantage point of his disaster. Or another example is the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that he experienced something he calls the thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but we do know that it hurt. And he asks God to take, him, take it away multiple times. God says no, but then Jesus appears to him or speaks to him in some manner and says this. He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul rediscovered the sufficiency of God's grace, that God's grace was enough from the vantage point of his suffering and his disaster and his vulnerability. What I'm trying to say is that all through the Bible, God's people rediscover God's grace from the vantage point of their difficulty. Now, what does that have to do with Ephesians? This. What that tells us is that Ephesians is exactly and perfectly the book for us to read at the end of 2020. The book of Ephesians is not so much about suffering. It mentions it, but it doesn't develop it a great deal. But it is all about rediscovering God. And in particular, it's all about what happens when the church, the community of Jesus Christ, rediscovers God and God's grace. Because as the church rediscovers God and God's grace, the church itself is renewed. And so what I want to ask you to do right now is come with me into just the very first few verses of Ephesians. We're going to start at verse 3. We're not going to get beyond verse 7. And I want to show you a few reasons why the Apostle Paul, despite his suffering and difficulty, despite his imprisonment, is captivated by God. Because as we see why Paul's captivated by God, we'll see why we can be captivated by God, and we'll see how it is that God will use our present difficulties to renew us. So come with me. Ephesians 
and look at verse three. So again, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus. Probably it wasn't just one church. It was probably a letter that was meant to be sent to a number of churches. And Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And Paul begins, after he greets them, he begins by celebrating all that God has done. And it's a remarkable sentence. Verse three, he says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with watch this, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that verse, but it means at least this. It means Paul thinks that God has blessed those who are in Christ with not every single blessing that we can think of, but every single blessing that God can think of. Now, what in the world could that possibly mean? Well, I think it takes all of the book of Ephesians to explain it, but he begins to get more specific in verse four. Take a look at it. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, pause there. And you've got to feel the magnitude of what Paul just said and how audacious it is. The Apostle Paul looks back into the unimaginable past. He looks back at a time, if we could call it that, before anything existed. He says, way back before whatever it is, the Big Bang, or, or, or way back when there was nothing but God, Paul says God had a plan. He says that God the Father hatched a plan, and the plan was to create a group of people, create the whole universe, and within the universe to create a group of people, and then uh, call them to himself and mold them and shape them until they are a people who share God's character. Let me say it this way. Paul's saying, Ephesian Christians, and to us, he says, Christians at Emmanuel. He says, God chose you and planned your transformation before he ever created the world. In fact, it was part of the, divine spe the, the design specifications of the whole created universe. Now, like I say, that's a big, and it is a bold, audacious thing to say. But here's one reason it's really important, at least for the Apostle Paul, one of the things that this means is that Paul did not think Paul was the main character of Paul's story. I'll explain what I mean. It wasn't always like that. So go back in time in Paul's life. Earlier in Paul's life, Paul had been a really, really skillful uh, agent of oppression. Uh, he'd been a little bit like a religious law enforcement officer of his day. Uh, he was a little bit like the Roman officer, or the Roman soldier guard that he was chained to while he was dictating this letter. And at this earlier point in the Apostle Paul's life, um, he really thought that he was the main character in Paul's story. So um, everything in Paul's life, in his mind, was about his initiative and his performance and uh, uh, his choice uh, about his life. He was in control. And he used that control to exert power over other people. Now, to be fair to him, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he was full of good intentions. But he was a train wreck, despite those good intentions. He was a train wreck 
at running his own life. And part of the reason he was a train wreck at running his own life is that, though he did not know this, he was never designed to run his own life. And he found that out one day when Jesus, like, pretty much literally got in his way. Um, what happened, if you've read this story, it's in the book of Acts chapter 9. Um, Paul was on a trip to go uh, try to arrest some Christians in a place called Damascus. And, um, and on the way, Jesus remarkably somehow appeared to him. Uh, there was a bright light, there was a voice, a lot of things happened, super dramatic, but the bottom line was Paul gets struck blind temporarily. But more importantly, Jesus persuades Paul to stop running his own life, to defect from uh, Paul being in control of Paul's life to Jesus being in control of Jesus's life. I mean, sorry, Jesus being in control of Paul's life, forgive me. But what happened was Jesus invaded Paul's life now, when that happened, it wasn't a hostile takeover. It was a, it was a, it was a loving intervention. Transformed Paul's life. And later on, Paul realized that that intervention, that moment where Jesus broke into his life, that intervention had been planned long before. It had been planned by God before Paul even was born. And not only was it planned before Paul was born, it was planned before the world even existed. And it meant that from the moment of that intervention onward, Paul was no longer the decisive, controlling person in his own life. Rather, God, through Jesus Christ, was the decisive, controlling agent in his life. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. It might make you really, really nervous. If it does, just, just hold on. But for Paul, it was a good thing. Because Paul eventually realized that he had been designed for this from the very beginning. Now, that may sound strange to you, but I want you to see that for Paul, this is part of how he could be confident and secure in the midst of terrible adversity. Why do I say that? Here's why. Put yourself in Paul's mind. According to Paul, God chose Paul and every Christian for a purpose, a particular purpose. And that purpose was that Paul would be transformed to be like God himself. That is to say, that Paul would become transformed so that he was holy and blameless and living in the presence of God. And in Paul's mind, God had planned that before time itself. And one of the things that that means is if God had planned that before time itself, then it means that God is ultimately responsible for getting it done. And if God is ultimately responsible for getting it done, then it means that even if Paul is in prison, even if Paul has no agency over his own life plan, still he can be confident that he will not miss his ultimate purpose. He can be secure that one way or another, God who planned it from the beginning will use even Paul's adversity to shape Paul into the man that God wants him to be. And therefore, Paul's main job is not to try to control everything in his life. Rather, his main job is to consent to God's ongoing work, which had been planned from the beginning. God, Paul's job was to consent to God and his power and his sovereignty. Now, again, that may sound troubling. And if it does, keep listening, please. But let me say this. Emmanuel, one of the things that this means for us is that God wants to use the insecurity of our present moment 
to persuade us that we are not in control of our lives. We have never been in control of our lives despite all that we thought, but that actually we were never really supposed to be anyway. Instead, God designed us for him to be in control of our lives. And God chose us before the foundation of the world. If you are in Christ, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before you ever chose him. And he chose you for a purpose. And the purpose for which he chose you, the purpose of your life is neither success, nor comfort, nor fame, nor approval, nor whatever else you want it, you might imagine you wish it was. Rather, the purpose is better. God chose you, and the purpose of, the li- of your life that he has given you is that you would become a person who resembles his character and that you would live in his presence and enjoy him forever. And when you consent to that story, you'll know a confidence and a security that you will never have otherwise. So long as you seek after, you know, try to control your own life and pursue success or comfort or security or whatever else that it is, you know, insert your favorite thing here. As long as you're pursuing that and trying to control your life, you will always, always be both disappointed and insecure. But when you consent to the Lord and his sovereignty in your life, there is a security and a confidence that's so robust that it can endure even if you're chained to a Roman guard. But now there's more. Look at verse five. God, Paul says, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, When Paul realized that God had chosen him before the foundation of the world for holiness, it filled Paul's life with unconquerable purpose. When Paul learned that God had planned to adopt him into his family, it filled Paul with limitless love. Let me ask you a question. And this question, risks a little bit of cringe factor, okay? This may sound cringy, okay? But, but I, I need to ask it. How central do you think love is to the universe? Can you see how that sounds a bit cringy? But here's what I mean. Um, if, you're, if we're like, let's say we're uh, evolutionary materialists, right? And we don't think that there's a God. Let's imagine um, that the only thing that exists uh, around us is, is just the natural material world. Um, if that's the case, then love is still might be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, but it's primarily, I guess, an, an evolutionary tool to help humans uh, reproduce and also help each other survive. Now, if, if, if love might be wonderful in that view of the world, but it won't be central to the universe. It might be central to human life, but it won't be central to the universe. And in the ancient world in which Paul was writing, love wasn't central to the universe either. Um, Even if you were a pagan, the the gods, maybe the Roman gods or the Greek gods, um, they typically created humans, if they did, uh, to be their slaves. And very often the gods didn't love, but they often lusted. But love, neither in the ancient world nor in a contemporary uh, evolutionary materialist kind of framework, love is not central to the universe. But this explains why Paul's vision is so revolutionary because here's what he's saying. He says, before the beginning of the universe, he's back in that unimaginable past. 
when the world was still in its planning stages. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed to create a group of people. We've already talked about that. But then they planned to adopt these people into the family of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They planned to adopt these people into the family of the Trinity so that God the Father would love this group of people just like he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, it's an audacious idea, but it means that at the center of Paul's understanding of the universe, there's a relationship. At the center of Paul's understanding of the universe, there is a relationship of love within the Trinity. And not only that, at the center of Paul's understanding of history, all of history is a story of that love being poured out on this particular group of human beings. Which means that love, if Paul's right, is right at the center of the universe. It's not eccentric. It's not just... It's not just a bit of it. And it love is right at the center of the story of history. Now, this explains why Paul can trust God so much. And this is why Paul can be happy that God is in charge. You see, um, some of us probably have already been struggling with this. If God's in control and God is the main character in our lives and in all of history, then you can agree that can be a really frightening thing, right? Because what if God is a tyrant? I mean, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want Zeus to be to have all power. You couldn't trust him. But all that changed for Paul when he learned about God's plan of adoption. Because it means that God's purposes for the universe and for history is big with limitless affection. If God the Father has planned to adopt a group of people into his own family, then it means that this God is a God where limitless power combines with limitless love. And I don't know any other view of God in history that combines limitless power with limitless love so perfectly. And if Paul belongs to a God like that, then he can rejoice. He can rejoice because he knows that he is God's adopted son and that his father is good and has a good plan. And his, and his father's good plan is good, even if it leads Paul through adversity. That's why Paul can rejoice even when he's got a chain on. Friends, assurance of our adoption into the family of God is what drives resilience in the Christian life. The more confident you are in God's deep affection, the more resilient you're gonna be in the midst of adversity. And so I ask you, how confident are you in your adoption? And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't even know if I am adopted. I kind of wish I was. If it's available, I'm interested. And if that's you, then there's really good news. Because even that desire to be adopted into the family of God, even that question, am I adopted into the family of God? Even those questions and that desire can be a sign that before the foundation of the universe, God chose you. And right now, God is calling you by name. He's calling you by name and he's saying, will you come to Jesus Christ? Will you surrender your life to him? 
And as you surrender your life to him and trust him and not yourself, just like Paul did after Jesus intervened in his life, if you will trust in Jesus Christ and not yourself, and if you will consent to him being the Lord of your life, then you will be adopted into the family of God and you will live under the white hot affection of God the Father for all eternity. Consent. All right. But all this brings up a question for me. And here's the question. If God is big and if God is in control and if God is full of love, then I want to know how does God's power and God's love relate to the horrors of this world? Well, look at verse seven. Paul writes, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, I already said that 20 or 30 years before Paul wrote this, uh, Jesus had died on the cross and had risen again. Now, think about the cross of Christ. Because it is the blood and the grit and the iron and the nails of the cross of Jesus Christ that proves that God's love is big enough to handle the hell of this world. Let me say that differently. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God's love and God's perfect commitment to justice and righteousness and goodness come together and deal with the horror of this world. Because friends, this world is full of horror, is it not? And I don't have to persuade you of that. Look at the news, look at your family history, look at your own heart. There's evil all over the place. And Paul knows this. He is chained to a Roman guard in Rome. And in Rome, just outside the city, there were mass graves where they would put the bodies of the slaves whom they had crucified. Paul knows all about the horror of this world. And he knows it because he personally perpetrated it. And I say all this because... All the talk about God's love is toxic if it means that God papers over or ignores the evil of this world. And all that we were reading in Micah over these last many weeks have proven to us that God does not paper over the evil of this world, nor even the evil of his own people. And the cross is where you see how God deals with it. Because the cross means that God personally takes responsibility for the evil of this world. I don't mean that he takes responsibility for it in the sense that he's culpable for it, but rather his love is so big that he finds a way to reach out to the guilty and bring them to a place where they can be adopted or redeemed, freed into his family. It means that before the world is made, once again, here we are again. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit agreed that in order to save guilty people, God the Son, Jesus Christ, would would have to die the death that our guilt deserved. And that he would die that death so that the guilty could be adopted and enjoy the love that only Jesus deserves. And that story was the biggest story of Paul's life. He never forgot the costliness of that love, nor the depths of his own sin. 
He never forgot that he himself had once been someone very much like the Roman guard he was chained to. And Paul never forgot that he had once perpetrated horrendous evil. And Paul never forgot how Jesus had redeemed him, freed him from his slavery to his own sin, and that Jesus had done that by being crucified. And then Paul never forgot the wonder that he had been adopted and that therefore God the Father loved Paul like God the Father loved Jesus Christ. And all of that became the engine room of Paul's transformation. Stay with me here. How do you take an exploiter like Paul and transform him to be a man who is holy and blameless before God? Like verse four says, is God's plan. How do you take a perpetrator of terror and transform him into a man who resembles the love and the mercy of God himself? How do you do that? Well, it all flows from being redeemed through blood. It all flows from the cross of Christ. And it works like this. Paul saw the kindness and the grace of God towards him in Jesus Christ. And when he saw that and when that really landed upon his soul, and it ignited an explosion of thanksgiving. And that explosion exploded out in the form of praise. Praise is pouring forth affection back to God because of all that God has done for us and because of who he is. And that praise, that explosion of affection back towards God motivated in Paul a desire to be like God. When you really, really love someone, you love the things about that person's character. And the more you admire that character, the more you would want to see it in your own life. So as he, Paul it pours out praise to God for who he is and what he's done, it motivates a desire within Paul to love other people like Paul had been loved by God. In other words, verse 6, Paul began to live all of his life to the praise of God's glorious grace. And the more he praised God's glorious grace, the more he resembled God's character. And the more he resembled God's character, the more he was fulfilling God's purpose for him that began before the foundation of the world, that Paul would become increasingly holy and blameless in his sight. Now, Emmanuel, I'm saying all this because that is God's plan for us. If you are in Christ, if you have consented to Christ's redemption, his freedom from our sin, and if you have consented to being adopted into the family of God, and if Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, then understand this. God chose you for holiness before the foundation of the world, and God's purpose for you is that you will be transformed so that you will be like him. And whatever else God wants to do for, your, for you in your life, that is his high priority. And God's transformation for you will get traction when you increasingly experience his grace into your deepest guilt and shame when you experience redemption through the blood of Christ. Friends, Christ's grace becomes glorious to us, compelling and beautiful, precisely when it penetrates the worst horrors of your life, both those horrors which you have perpetrated and those horrors which you have experienced. And when it drills into those areas and grace touches your shame and your guilt, then you will find a freedom that is beyond all that you can imagine. 
then you will begin to praise God's grace. And you will praise his grace when times are good and you will praise his grace when times are bad. And as you praise God's glorious grace, your adoption and his fatherhood will become increasingly sweet to you. And as his fatherhood and your adoption becomes increasingly sweet to you, then you will increasingly resemble your father who is in heaven, which was God's purpose for you from before the foundation of the world. Do you see how it works? So Emmanuel, leverage 2020. Don't survive it. Leverage it. Leverage it with all of its uncertainty and its pain, its disappointment and its anxiety. Leverage all of that, whatever it is that you're facing, leverage it because God wants you to rediscover him. God wants you to rediscover his mercy for you. God is bigger than you thought he was. His love is deeper than you thought it was. God and not you are the main character and the main driver and the main agent in your life. And that has been that way from the beginning. And it, you were designed for him to be the main character of your story. And your renewal and the renewal of this church is all bound up in seeing the massive expansiveness of God in new clarity. So friends, over these next few months, as we go through the book of Ephesians, the Lord's going to take your view of him and is going to expand it week by week. And as, we, and as God expands your view of him and his grace for you, then increasingly you will begin to join Paul in exclaiming, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with not some, but every spiritual blessing. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.